Chapter 35 of Anglo-American Memories by George Washburn Smalley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35. Lord Glenesk and the Morning Post. The owning or leasing of several houses is an English habit which is no longer confined to great landowners who have inherited their possessions. Many men whose success in life is their own adopt the custom. Among many instances I will take one, for other reasons than house-owning, the late Lord Glenesk, who had at one time a lease of Invercald, the fine place belonging to the Farquharson family. There, as later at Glenwish, he liked to gather friends about him, and there was each year a succession of parties. In the beginning, Mr. Borthwick, he became successively Sir Algernon Borthwick and Lord Glenex. His name and his wife's connect themselves with many social memories in Scotland, in London, where the house in Piccadilly was long a brilliant centre, and in Cannes, where they occupied in winter the Chateau Saint-Michel at the Californie end of the town, in beautiful grounds touching on the sea. They had also, for some years, that square red brick house in Hampstead on the edge of the heath, with a little land and a brick wall about it, and there they entertained of a Sunday during part of the season. Both had the art of hospitality and the secret of social life, by which I mean the secret of translating mere hospitality into happiness for others. Mr. Borthwick acquired the Morning Post in 1876. It was then a threepenny paper, six cents on each of six days of the week. No Englishman had ever then thought of a Sunday edition of a daily paper, nor has since. There are Sunday papers in London, of which one, The Observer, is a supremely able journal, but they are published one and all on Sundays only. When the Morning Post passed into the hands of its late proprietor, the penny paper had already made its appearance, though not the halfpenny. The future, it was thought, belonged to the penny, but the Morning Post, like the Times, was supposed to appeal to a special class. It was the organ of the fashionable world. You went to it for all that fashionable intelligence now supplied, more or less completely, by all papers. It was the one newspaper which lay on the table of every drawing-room in Mayfair and Belgravia, and in every country house throughout the kingdom. Till Borthwick became editor, it was respectable, decorous, conventional, and dull. It had little news except what came to it through Reuter and other news agencies. There were flashes of vivacity when young Borthwick went to Paris, a city he understood, and sent home sparkling letters which were the most readable things in the paper, and always seemed a little out of place. It was an organ of conservatism, but the kind of conservatism expounded in its editorial columns was more orthodox than inspiring. It had a moderate circulation, and its net yearly profits were not far from $30,000. When Mr. Borthwick came into control of this property, not at first, but not very long after, he conceived the notion of turning it into a penny paper. It was he who told me the story. He had originality, and he had courage, but he was also a man who sought advice in great enterprises, and he talked this scheme over with many men of experience far greater than his own. He said to me later, 
one and all they advised me against it one and all they thought it spelled ruin or if not ruin a great risk to a valuable though not great property and the certainty of loss they told me i should inevitably forfeit the support of the classes to whom the post had always appealed and that i should not gain new subscribers from other classes in numbers sufficient to make good these losses i should lose not only readers but advertisers for the advertisers in the post were largely the west end tradespeople who desired to reach their west end patrons i should lose the political authority which was based on the support of the privileged classes in short a penny morning post was inconceivable and unthinkable from any point of view whatever to all of which borthwick listened he considered every argument and objection and protest laid before him but he was one of those men who regarded the opinions of other men not as authoritative but as the material for forming his own opinions and he summed the whole story up in a sentence every journalist and every man of business whom i consulted was opposed to the change and i finally took my decision to make the morning post a penny paper in the face of a unanimous remonstrance by friends and experts of all kinds when borthick told me this some years had passed since the change had been made he said in the first year the profit of the paper doubled in the second they reached twenty thousand pounds by the fifth the amount was thirty thousand pounds and so it went on until the annual net income of the morning post was sixty thousand pounds ten times what it had been at the price of threepence it continued to be the organ of the classes not however refusing to accept that tory democracy of which lord randolph churchill was the inventor upon which toryism conservatism and unionism have ever since thriven neither mayfair nor belgravia nor the country houses ever tried to do without it the advertisers continued to advertise it became moreover the organ of the better class of servants butlers ladies maids footmen and the multitude of menials who sought places in the best houses in other respects also the paper was revolutionized it became a newspaper the day of the humdrum was over it had special news services and capable men to conduct them borthwick was a patient man impatient of dullness he gathered about him good journalists and good writers not always the same thing you now began to read the news and letters and leaders from some other motive than a sense of duty they were readable the hand of the master left its mark on every column nor did the demands of journalism exhaust sir algernon bothwick's energies he went into politics and into parliament sitting for a vast constituency in south kensington lady bothwick's help in this political and election business was invaluable that very accomplished lady brought to bear upon the voters of south kensington a kind of influence to which they had been unaccustomed a social influence their wives took part in the game neither having nor desiring votes but able to affect the course of events as much as if the ballot had been theirs and more lady borthwick had twenty five hundred names on her visiting list and they were more than names each name stood for an individual whom lady borthwick knew and whose value she knew the beautiful white drawing-room at number one thirty nine piccadilly was in those days a little more thronged of an afternoon or evening than it had been but was never crowded 
some of the best music in london was to be heard there at tea-time the dinners were carefully studied dances and evening parties had a slightly political flavour but were none the less successful there is i suppose no place where more than in london their gentle influences have a more soothing effect upon an electorate if any reader reflects on the true nature of the exploit which borthwick accomplished he will perhaps agree that the man capable of it must have had a high order of genius if it was not creative in the sense that lord northcliffe's is creative it was perfectly adapted to the circumstances and the time it has not perhaps been quite adequately recognized lord glenesk was so much a figure in society that when his name was mentioned men who knew only the surface of things saw in him the ornament of a ballroom he was that and he was so very much more that this ballroom part of his life is hardly even incidental he would dance night after night in the daytime his mind applied itself to some of the stiffest problems of a very difficult profession he told me one morning he had not been in bed for three nights the only answer i could make was that i did not know he ever went to bed but i knew that after sleepless nights he spent days of necessary hard work at the office and that he brought to each matter he dealt with the freshness of a fresh mind it was late in life before he began to know the meaning of the word tired take him for all in all i should name lord glenesk as one of the three great men i have known in english journalism and whether in or out of journalism he had a kindliness a charm a sweet authority in the affairs of life which do not belong to all successful men by and by there appeared in lady borthwick's drawing-room a fresh flower of a girl whose presence at her mother's afternoon concerts and then at evening parties was a little in advance of her coming out miss lilias borthwick is now the countess bathurst and i believe has when she chooses to exercise it full control over the morning post of which mr fabian ware is the present editor a young journalist who has made himself a name in his profession lady bathurst is like her mother one of those women who possess better means of making their wishes and character felt than by clamouring for votes there are cases where womanly charm may be the companion of settled opinions and convictions and clear purposes to which the morning post of to-day is a witness one factor in the success of the paper was oliver borthwick the son of lord glenesk journalism attracted him he entered his father's office early his aptitudes for the business showed themselves at once and before many years he was managing editor he had an inquiring inventive mind he kept his conservatism for politics and applied to the conduct of the morning post the most original and even radical and sometimes daring methods he understood details and thought no detail beneath the notice of a manager he liked to do things which the old hands in the office pronounced impossible among them that paged index to the contents of the paper which he first believed and then proved to be practicable all this did not stand in the way of broad conceptions and great schemes for which his father gave him a free hand lord glenis asked me one day if oliver had told me of his newest plan i said no well you had better ask him about it i shall not interfere though it is going to cost a lot of money and he named a sum which ran into many figures 
those were the relations which existed between father and son but there came a day when they existed no longer oliver borthwick's joy in his work was such that he never spared himself and he died at thirty-two his father still living the only gift he lacked was the gift of adapting his work to his strength he overworked recklessly he could not do otherwise he would spare everybody but himself and so to-day instead of being an ornament of his profession and of social life oliver borthwick is only a memory and a lasting regret since the foregoing was written mr reginald lucas has published his lord glenisk and the morning post an agreeable and informing book this is not the place to comment on it but i should like to add to what i have said above of lord glenisk a passage from a signed review by me in the morning post as i think of the man whom i knew the importance of the things he did great and brilliant as they were seems to me less than the importance of the man himself if i could i should like to describe not what he did but what he was i would say that his friendships to which i have already referred were part not only of his life but of himself the range of them would show that political friendships came to him in his position as a matter of course but friendships non-political were more numerous and more remarkable still the late queen's regard for him was a strong one early in life he was the friend of that astonishing frenchwoman elizabeth rachel felix more commonly known as rachel perhaps the greatest tragedian of all time in almost the full flower of her genius at seventeen later in life he was the friend the very helpful and trusted friend of madame sarah bernhardt he early conceived and retained to the end an affection for the french emperor i need not go on with the catalogue but there are many friends not to be named who were under obligation to him for kindnesses and whom he seems to have liked because he had helped them all through life that was true he gave freely generously delicately nihil humani was his motto or one of his mottoes there must have been many a life so varied as his does not move to the music of a single air on a single string not the briefest and not even the most public notice of lord glenis can omit all reference to the happiness of his private life even the few lines above may show what part his wife had in his happiness and he in hers of his daughter lady bathurst mr lucas has told us something with due reserve enough to give his readers at least a hint of the affection between her and her father and why it was on both sides so deep and is on hers so abiding oliver was to all the world a beloved and brilliant figure and when the time came his father's right hand then finally relieving him of his executive cares then at thirty-two came the end and then the father at seventy-five takes up the burden once more and not for long mr lucas tells us that president roosevelt's manner of receiving oliver was particularly flattering i hope it may interest his friends if i enlarge that a little oliver told me when he came to washington that he had the usual introduction from the british ambassador which is indispensable and asked me what he had better do 
he wished something more than a formal interview as one of the many whom it was the president's habit to receive in line bestowing a few cordial but conventional words on each i saw the president that afternoon told him something of oliver's position and of oliver himself he answered bring him to lunch to-morrow at lunch the president put him next to himself and the two talked together during and after this meal then oliver and i walked away he said the president is a great natural force a phrase which recalls lord morley's later remark that the two greatest natural phenomena he had seen in the united states were niagara and president roosevelt the day following i again saw the president who perhaps will for once allow himself to be quoted he said your friend oliver bothwick is a very young man but a man then a pause then and what charm he has it is long since i have met any newcomer whom i have liked better End of chapter thirty five